Coming up on the podcast, the Lakers take game one from the Golden State Warriors. Joel Embiid is your MVP this year. And do the Memphis Grizzlies have a culture problem that goes even further than letting go of Dylan Brooks? We'll talk about that next. Freedom. Freedom. Freedom over fame. All right, taping this at 4.45 Central Time on a Wednesday afternoon. If you missed last night's NBA games, the 76ers, they played tonight, by the way. Um, Miami fell to the New York Knicks in game number two of their series. So that series will shift to South Beach, tied at one apiece. Jimmy Butler didn't play. And in the nightcap, the Lakers took game one at the Chase Center from the Golden State Warriors on Tuesday night. So recording this on a Wednesday, May 3rd. My name is Grayson Singleton. Welcome into the show. I do want to start with this before we get to the NBA playoffs because we're pretty much in that area where we're putting a bow on the offseason in the NFL. And it was quite an offseason. It was quite a draft. And I left this offseason. I left the draft thinking this. By the way, there were quite a few teams that did absolutely well in the NFL draft. There weren't a there weren't a whole lot that I thought did terribly. I thought Detroit's was not good, particularly in the first round. I thought Washington reached on a corner. Outside of getting a left tackle, a potential good left tackle, I thought the Cardinals left a little bit to be desired. But other than that, I don't see a team that did poorly in the draft. There were quite a few teams that actually did really, really well in the draft. Pittsburgh, which is the, is the obvious one. Pittsburgh is the obvious one. The Jets, I thought, did better. I like the Jets draft more than a lot of people did because I like getting depth at pass rusher. Could you have gotten another one in terms of value at that pick, at pick 15, instead of getting Will McDonald from Iowa State? There's an argument to be made there, but I'm not going to dwell on that but for so much if they like a guy like a Will McDonald who can play with his hand in the ground can play standing up at that edge position I like getting depth of that position particularly because you lost out on all of the first round offensive tackles and I thought New England did a really did a really good job I would I have liked to see them go playmaker in rounds two and three yes I think that's the only thing that keeps this from being an a draft for the Patriots is that they waited till the sixth round when they got Kayshawn Booty out of uh, LSU, which I thought is excellent value for him. But I think they should have made it their mission to address Playmaker way earlier. But getting Christian Gonzalez, a guy that I thought was going to go in the top 10, certainly top 13, getting him at 17 and trading back and still being able to get him was a no-brainer for them, and I thought that was an A-plus pick. I thought they were one of the winners of the first round just with that pick alone. But now that we've sort of put a bow on all of the offseason additions, at least the high-profile ones, I present to you who I think will win the Super Bowl next year heading into training camp. Now, obviously, this could change as we get closer and closer to the start of the regular season, but I present to you the Philadelphia Eagles, last year's runner-up. That's who I think is going to win the Super Bowl if you had to ask me pre-training camp. 
And I know people are going to say, well, you should keep Kansas City there until somebody knocks them off. Number one, there is a drop-off at left tackle with the Chiefs from Orlando Brown to Jawan Taylor, particularly just because Jawan Taylor hasn't been able to stay healthy consistently over the course of his career. So I think just by virtue of that, there's your question mark there. And number two is, are the Chiefs really going to be able to run this back with just a makeshift cast of receivers? Now, I know Kadarius Toney's going to be in his first full season. Sky Moore, you hope, is going to develop. But I thought they were real players in the Odell Beckham sweepstakes, just particularly because they need a bona fide number one. And I don't know if you can run this back just having Travis Kelsey and a hodgepodge of wide receivers around him and call that sufficient for Patrick Mahomes. Maybe you can. I hope they prove me. I Well, I don't because I'm a Broncos fan. But in the interest of fun football, that'd be really cool if they could prove that, hey, you could do that. And how much would that diminish the wide receiver value? But when I look at what the Philadelphia Eagles did this offseason, it was nothing short of sensational. And they lost players. And we knew this was going to happen. We knew they were going to lose a lot of guys, particularly because they had guys on one-year contracts, they're an aging team, and they're a team that's about to become really, really expensive. And they navigated that all really well. They decided to bring back Bradbury and Slay. They, they decided to part ways with their two linebackers, Kaiser White um, and the TJ Edwards were two of the linebackers that, that they said sayonara to. And in free agency, because it's old news, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but they get younger at safety with Terrell Edmonds. By the way, they drafted one. I'll get to that in a second. Nick Morrow comes over. He had a, He's coming off a season where he had a career-high 115 tackles with Chicago. Greedy Williams is going to be a backup corner, but in Philadelphia, corners get hurt all the time, so you're going to need a solid backup. And then they and then they got Rashad Penny to be a backup running back. And that transitions to the draft when, after the Detroit Lions took Jameer Gibbs inexplicably with the 12th pick, the Eagles and Howie Roseman kicked the tire on that one and said, oh, uh, yo, you want to guess DeAndre Swift? So now the running back depth is there. Your receiving core is still intact. Your defense looks like it's going to be back and better than ever. Oh, and by the way, they added to that defense. That was really, really good last year. Two first-round picks. Jalen Carter falls to them. They move up from 10 to 9 to make sure the Bears don't get him and to make sure nobody else trades for him to take Jalen Carter. And then at pick 30, oh, look who's sitting there. Nolan Smith, who is really, really good. A little bit slight for a defensive end, linebacker position, whatever edge position he plays. He's a little bit slight, but he's coming off of a torn peck. And had it not been for that torn peck, he probably would have gone in the top 12. He falls all the way to 30 to the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles didn't even have to move. You grab an offensive lineman, 
because your offensive line is getting is getting up there in age. We don't know how long Jason Kelsey is going to be there. We don't know how long Lane Johnson is going to be the dominant right tackle, one of the greatest right tackles we've ever seen in the game. We don't know how long he's going to be able to play at that level. Sidney Brown, the safety from Illinois, who's really good, by the way, got him in the third round. So their secondary has gotten a little bit younger. Oh, speaking of the secondary, they drafted another Georgia Bulldog, Keely Ringo, in the fourth round. A guy who I thought, come draft time, I thought he could go in the back end of the second round. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the consensus best team in the NFC. The only team that could come close to them is the 49ers, and we don't know who their quarterback is. If you look at the hierarchy of the NF- of the NFC teams, it's Philadelphia, and then there's a gap before we get to San Francisco. They have opened up a chasm between themselves and the rest of the NFC. I don't think Dallas is as comparable to the Eagles as they were a season ago. I think Dallas is going to be really good. But I don't think I don't think they're Philadelphia. And then what is what is there else to fear in the NFC? You mentioned the Chiefs. The Chiefs have to go through a gauntlet in the AFC. Let's go ahead and let's let's go ahead and, and count it out. You have Justin Herbert and Russell Wilson in your own division. Russell Wilson just got a quality head coach. In the AFC East, you have Josh Allen, who's gone toe-to-toe with Mahomes twice. The Dolphins, whatever they're going to be. The Patriots, whatever they're going to be. But you can't count them out. And then Aaron Rodgers plays for the Jets now. Pittsburgh's going to be better. I don't think they'll compete with Kansas City, but they're going to be better. Lamar's still there with Baltimore with his new weaponry. Joe Burrow's gone toe-to-toe with Mahomes three, four times. And then you have this ascension of Trevor Lawrence. And by the way, Jacksonville's no pushover. Whereas you go to the the Eagles side of things in the NFC, nobody's competing with them except San Francisco. Oh, by the way, I know it's because their quarterback got hurt. The Eagles are still blowing them out in that game, by the way. I mean, the 49ers' defense could not slow down the Eagles' offense. So, that's that's where I get to where we are today. I think the Philadelphia Eagles are at least coming out of the NFC. Obviously, we're barring catastrophic injury or something, in something of that nature. Obviously. But there's your NFC representative in the Super Bowl. And depending on the matchup, I wouldn't be shocked to say that they win the Super Bowl. They were right there a season ago, and they got better and younger. Their defensive line is going to be a bunch of young dudes. Jalen Carter, Jordan Davis, Nolan Smith. First and second year guys. They still have the vets there with Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham. They were able to resign them. They got younger at linebacker. Nicobe Dean's going to step in, another Georgia Bulldog. He's going to step in and presumably be a starter. They've got youth in the secondary. They've got veterans in the secondary, all of them playmakers. There's, there's, not, a, there's not a single hole 
on this roster. I don't think there's another team in the NFL you can say that about. So yeah, the Eagles have the best. They have the best offseason. They right now have the best roster top to bottom in the NFL. They might be the best run organization in the NFL. Because after how quickly and quietly they got that deal done with Jalen Hurts, now they're saying, we take care of our own, which they've proven time and time again anyway. We take care of our own. Our negotiations are efficient. We draft oh so well. It's only a matter of time before the Eagles break through and hoist the Lombardi Trophy again after they did so in 2017. All right, now let's get to the NBA playoffs. All right, so before we get to L.A., Golden State, I do want to make one quick detour. Joel Embiid of the 76ers is the NBA MVP. It was announced yesterday. Embiid also is going to come back for Game 2 of their series against Boston with Philadelphia having stolen Game 1 without him. And when it comes to Joel Embiid, who averaged 33.7 points a game, 10 rebounds a game, 4.5 assists, something like that, outside with being the dominant big man that he is on defense, first of all, I think he deserved the MVP. He was my MVP. And he now has a chance to do what Nikola Jokic, who finished second, hasn't been able to do in his last two seasons of being the MVP. Jokic, the two-time MVP coming into the season. In 2021-2022 season, the Nuggets, after, after Jokic was named the MVP, were gentlemen swept by the Golden State Warriors in the first round. That was the second year he was the MVP, excuse me. And then 2020-2021, his first season as the MVP, they beat the Blazers in six games and then get swept by the Suns in the conference semis. So now here's Embiid, who, by the way, has also never made it out of the conference semis in his career. He's the MVP, and he has a chance now to get to the conference finals somewhere Jokic hasn't done outside of the bubble, and Jokic wasn't the MVP that year. So when we're talking, and why this is important, is not a, um, it's not a shot at Jokic. It's not a demeaning of Jokic. What it is talking about is what this could mean for Joel Embiid in terms of how we rank players in today's NBA. Because Embiid and Jokic have such similar skill sets. Now, they're deployed differently. Jokic, obviously, Mr. Triple-Double these days, has a lot of assists. Well, Embiid doesn't initiate Philadelphia's offense, so he's not going to get those assist numbers that Jokic gets. But both are exquisite passers. And both are excellent teammates. So, at times, I think, because of how brilliant Jokic is in terms of running an offense and executing an offensive game plan, we put Jokic ahead of Embiid in some of these discussions. When Embiid is the better defender, Embiid is a much better defender, and dare I say he's a better scorer of the basketball. Now, Jokic can score. Don't get me wrong. He averages like 26 a game. But in terms of full-on scoring, going past the numbers, 
I think Embiid is a better scorer. And when we're listing the great players of our day and age right now, when we talk about putting him up there with the Giannis's and the Jokic's, you know, AD has vaulted back into that after his performances playoff. Steph Curry, I think Embiid gets gets a boost if in his MVP year he goes to the conference finals. Something that Jokic didn't do in his two MVP years. Just a thought. So Los Angeles took game one of their series against the Golden State Warriors. By the way, stole home court advantage in the process. And boy, was I nervous. Now, if you followed my, if you followed me for a while, I'm a Lakers fan. Um, that 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 is my team. This was the series that I could not wait to see. Did that game one? Almost feel like game one of the 2018 finals when LeBron dropped 51 against the Golden State Warriors. And then J.R. Smith happened and they had to go to overtime and the Warriors blitzed the Cavs to win game one. It was so demoralizing that you knew Cleveland's not winning this series. Cleveland's already overmatched. Who was the second best player on the Cavs that year? I don't I don't remember. Was the second best player George Hill? Let me go ahead and look this up. I didn't I didn't even plan to go this direction. But let's see, 18-19 Cavs roster. Nope, that was that was the year. That was the year LeBron left. 17-18. Here we go. Cavs roster. Jay Crowder, Jordan Clarkson, Rodney Hood, yeah, Kyle Korver, Kevin Love was still there. Okay. So it was LeBron, Kevin Love, the corpse of Dwayne Wade, and Jordan Clarkson. There you go. And they took the Warriors to the brink in game one. And it, and it had that mindset after the game where you basically were saying, now the Cavs really have to beat the Warriors five times in a series because you had them. And then you, and the brain fart of the century occurred. And then you lost them. LeBron dropped 51, a wasted effort. That's what this game felt like toward the end last night when the Lakers had built that 14-point lead and gave it all up in two and a half minutes. And, you know, kudos to the Lakers for being able to withstand and execute down the stretch, which is why which is why the Lakers can still win the NBA Finals. Have they looked better than Denver? Absolutely not. There's no argument, except defensively. But in terms of offensive half-court execution, no. I don't think anybody left in the playoffs has looked better than Denver in that respect. But they can still win the finals just purely if they get the game late in the fourth quarter because they have been excellent executing at that point in time, particularly in the last minute and a half of games. And that's usually when it's been LeBron taking over, but D'Lo hit shots at the end. AD was just out of gas. Which is fine because he gave you 31 and 23. 
so I don't blame him for being out of gas. But they got time. They got timely buckets from D'Lo, which generally has been the case this season and this postseason. And then LeBron was able to notch in a couple of buckets late in the game. But otherwise, it almost felt like the Lakers had to get game one. Now, I picked the Lakers to win this series in six games, particularly because they were coming off two extra days of rest. Then the Warriors, who had to play game seven, which turned out to be an emotional game seven in Sacramento on Sunday afternoon. So I thought that would come into play. And, I, and once the Lakers stole home court, the Warriors' struggles on the road at some point would kick in. Now you, now you can say, oh, well, they just won a Game 7 on the road in Sacramento. Yes, but consider, consider the opponent for a second. You're talking about the Kings, who are a younger team. Most of those guys playing in their first Game 7, not Harrison Barnes, but a team that even though it's exciting offensively, their offensive execution late in games can subside, and they still don't play any defense. They're still not a good defensive team, and they're very thin on the front line, Where whether it's Sabonis and Barnes, you know, maybe Keegan Murray playing a small ball four, something of that nature. Whereas the Lakers are the experienced team. You know, they're led by LeBron and AD, who have both won titles. LeBron has been to, what, 10 NBA Finals? This is nothing new to him. D'Lo's a veteran. And they're, they're the ones bringing along these young guys. So they're not going to wilt when the moment calls, calls for them to step up. Also, they're a better defensive team than the Kings. Scratch that. They're a better defensive team since the, since the All-Star break than everybody. And they have a bigger front line. Their front line consists of LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And Jared Vanderbilt, who, by the way, I know Vanderbilt's offensive game isn't going to tell it. Jared Vanderbilt was sensational in game one. Which goes into kind of why I believe the Lakers will win the series. Now, obviously, it's a lot easier now that they've stolen game one and stolen home court advantage. It would have been demoralizing had they blown that 14-point lead and actually lost. But the matchups with the Lakers as it pertains to the Warriors, I think are more in favor of the Lakers than people give it credit for. And here's why. Because Klay Thompson doesn't really beat people off the dribble anymore, that never really was his game, but he could do it from time to time. He can't really do that anymore. You're okay sticking a D-Lo on him. Now, D'Angelo Russell gives up, you know, four inches in height but you're okay with sticking him on there because all you have to do is contest. And the Lakers decided we're going to put a bigger yet still spry player on Steph Curry. Jared Vanderbilt is 6'7". So if he can get into the face of Curry and keep Curry in front of him and close the airspace, he'll make Curry's life very, very difficult. And it showed. I think Steph Curry went from a point where he didn't score from the end of the first quarter into the middle of the fourth quarter. Coming off of a 50-point game against the Kings? 
And Jared Vanderbilt was great. And I love what Darvin Ham was doing, the coach of the Lakers. I love what he was doing in terms of matching Curry's minutes with Vanderbilt's. Now, Curry played 38 minutes, Vanderbilt played 26. But there were times in that game when Curry went to the bench and Darvin Ham took that as a chance to get Vanderbilt out of the game. Now, I wish Jared Vanderbilt's offensive game was a little bit more present so he didn't have to take him out of the game at the end when the Lakers' offense stagnated. But you've got to give something up when it comes to the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry coming off of a 20-point night with 6 for 13 from 3. A lot of that damage done in the fourth quarter. So they kept him at bay for most of the game. And if you're telling me Steph Curry's night is 10 for 24 from the field, I'll take it. I will take it. But the Lakers' biggest advantage in this series is on the interior. They're one of the best paint-scoring teams. And it's really hard to beat the Golden State Warriors when you don't when you don't hit three-pointers. The Lakers only made six. On the contrary, the Warriors had three players that made six three-pointers. Generally, that's a formula that will get you killed by the Warriors. But the Lakers still won by five. The Lakers made just as many field goals as the Warriors and made 20 more free throws. 20 more free throws. That's how you get that done. The Lakers take a lot easier shots. So they're scoring on more possessions. Now, the Warriors are the definition, in terms of this game in particular, in terms of game one that was played on Tuesday night. It was an example to me of players over analytics. Because if you just looked at the box score, and I left the point totals out. You would think the Warriors won that game because, well, twos are more than threes. And the turnover battle was exactly the same. Both teams only turned the ball over eight times. It was a really clean game. But the Lakers, while they weren't hitting threes, were not missing twos and weren't missing free throws. Because if you're going to take a lot of twos, you better make them. And the Warriors shot 46.7% from the field. Which is good enough to get that done, particularly with a team who is excellent defensively. From two, the Warriors shot 55%. So if you're making over half of your twos and 86% of your free throws, you're going to give yourself a chance down the stretch. But for the Warriors, they're in this they're in a very dangerous situation here. Here's what I mean by this. Number 1, the Warriors it's it's not really that big of a statement to say, so I'm kind of surprised I'm going to harp on this, but they got to win game 2. They have to win game 2. Because you don't want to go back to L.A. with the Lakers role players bound to play better at home. LeBron will typically shoot better at home. By the way, the law of averages says LeBron will break out of the shooting streak at some point. I believe he's like 18% in the last month and a half. And he shot 31% from three. 
over the course of the season. So eventually, we always say you'll regress to the mean. Sometimes you progress to the mean as well. So at some point, LeBron's going to start shooting the ball better. But you don't want to go to L.A., down 0-2, to a team with role players that plays better at home when you stink on the road. Not to mention the Lakers will get one at home. So right now, the best you can hope for if you're the Golden State Warriors is to come back in Game 5 with a split. Come back to the Chase Center, that is. But the biggest thing for the Warriors, though, is they've got a problem with their rotation. Their rotation is broken. And it seems like Steve Kerr just is unsure how to deploy guys outside of his starting five. We didn't think we'd see Jermichael Green the rest of the postseason. He played. Moses Moody came in, didn't take a shot. We didn't really know what to do with him. DiVincenzo has kind of played himself sometimes to the point where he's out of the rotation. Gary Payton's offensive limitations don't allow you to play him much in terms of floor spacing. And how you deploy Gary Payton, because Gary Payton is 6'3", is you have to still have a big out there. You still have to have a Kavon Looney or a Draymond Green. And if you watched the game last night, this is what plays into the Lakers' hands so well, is that Golden State's bigs cannot shoot. You don't have to guard them, which means what? You sag people back, which takes those passing lanes away from those cutters, particularly a Clay Thompson. So now the Lakers, the Warriors' cutting game doesn't happen, is taken away. So now your next best thing is to go with four shooters and either Draymond Green or Kevon Looney. Well, Draymond was in foul trouble. And that leaves the Warriors at a big disadvantage size-wise. Because the front line of the Lakers is AD, LeBron, and Vanderbilt. Whereas your tallest players would be Draymond, would be Kevon Looney, and then your next one would be Andrew Wiggins. Or Clay Thompson, who can't jump anymore. So you're at a size disadvantage there. So your your rotation in terms of how you match up with the Lakers, which is why I'm surprised not many people said this, is that the Lakers actually have a matchup advantage with the Golden State Warriors. The problem is the Lakers just aren't a perimeter shooting team. So you have to make up your mind that we have to make enough twos to offset the amount of threes that they're going to make. And what ended up being the case was that not only did they make enough twos, but they also got to the free throw line and knocked down those free throws enough to offset the three-point barrage at the end of the game. The Warriors are not a team that's going to take a whole lot of a whole lot of free throws. Not against the Lakers. The Lakers are too good at blocking shots. With AD, LeBron was getting in the action with block shots. Vanderbilt blocked a couple. Lakers at 10 blocks. Four from AD and LeBron apiece. Or three from LeBron. And then Vanderbilt chipped in one, uh, two. So the Lakers, they can defend the rim without fouling. And the Warriors are just too small to make a living in there. And then the last thing is, they're going to have, and this showed up in late in the series against Sacramento the, with the Warriors, 
they have a Jordan Poole problem. Now, I know this is not the most convenient time to bring this up because he played his best game of the postseason last night. Jordan Poole going 7 for 4, 15 from the field, 6 for 11 from 3, chipped in 21 points, didn't turn the ball over with 6 assists. By the way, did y'all know Jordan Poole was one of only two players with a positive plus-minus in last night's game? He had a plus 7. The only other person with a positive plus-minus was Clay Thompson with a plus 1. But what if Jordan Poole starts to revert back to Jordan Poole of Sacramento, against Sacramento, where he was reckless and careless, wasn't shooting the ball particularly well, giving the ball away, and by the way, he still gives you nothing defensively. So if you get a bad mismatch on a particular possession, whether he's guarding LeBron just because he's too small, D'Angelo Russell just won't be able to stay in front of him, or even an Austin Reeves, I wouldn't be surprised if the Lakers start hunting him defensively. Now, obviously, they'll hunt Steph Curry by trying to get LeBron onto him. But now you're in a situation with the Golden State Warriors where you could potentially have two players on the court that can be hunted defensively. And you combine that with your size disadvantage and the fact that Steve Curry just still hasn't figured out what he's got with his rotation, you're at a point where maybe you start seeing Kaminga again. Just for his size and his athleticism. I don't care what, he give, what you give him offensively. Give us somebody that can at least close the size gap with the Lakers. Maybe you do that. Maybe you utilize Anthony Lamb as another shooter to spread the floor a little bit more so the Lakers can stop sagging off everything. The Warriors' starting lineup consists of Steph Clay, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, and Kevon Looney. There are two guys the Lakers don't have to guard on the perimeter, Draymond and Looney. And you could see it. LeBron and AD are just sitting in the paint. They're just sitting there. Passing lanes taken up. Um, Driving lanes, there's automatic help. And then those guys are athletic enough to close on shooters as well, if they need to do so. Couple that with the job that Kavon, uh, excuse me, not Kavon Looney, um, Jared Vanderbilt did top guarding Steph Curry. It will make, it, it can all combine into the Lakers absolutely winning this series. I kind of overreacted on my radio show a little bit just because of what I didn't like with the Lakers' offense. But they match up very, very well with Golden State in a way that not many people thought they did. And now the ball is in Steve Kerr's court. He's got to figure out what to do with his lineup. And you can't go away from Kevon Looney. That, the, the obvious thing is go away from Kevon Looney and just play small like you did in the 2015 Finals. Or the 2014 ones. You can't do that. Who's going to guard AD? (laughs) Who just gave you 31 and 23? You can't do it. Obviously, the Lakers need to be prepared for the counter to counter adjust, but Steve Kerr's got his work cut out for him. 
if the Warriors are going to win this series. Freedom. Freedom. Freedom over fame. All right, let's finish up with this. The report came out from Sham Sharania yesterday that the Grizzlies have informed Dylan Brooks that under no circumstances, that's a direct quote, by the way, under no circumstances will they resign him. If you have missed anything in the Dylan Brooks saga, let me catch you up. Dylan Brooks is known as a guy who plays very hard. He can be chippy. He's an excellent defender, likes to talk a lot of trash, and somehow averages 11 points a game. I was unaware of that, that coming into the playoffs, he averaged 11 points a game. Dylan Brooks made waves when he called LeBron old and said that he pokes bears and (laughs) he doesn't respect anybody, including LeBron, by the way. He doesn't respect anybody until they come and give him 40. How did that turn out, you might ask? The very next game, LeBron dropped 20 and 20. He had like 22 points and 20 rebounds. Ladies and gentlemen, that adds up to 40. By the way, notching two clutch buckets, one of them on Dylan Brooks. And then in game six on last Friday night, the Lakers beat the Grizzlies 125 to 85 to eliminate them. 125 to 85 is a 40 point deficit. Isn't karma a you know what? Zach Kleiman, the general manager for the Memphis Grizzlies, has said that they will take a different approach to trash talk <laughs> next season. Oh boy. Oh boy. This comes at this comes two or three years after I praised the Memphis Grizzlies for how they fast-tracked this rebuild. And let's be clear, they have drafted very well when it comes to job ja, when it comes to Ja Morant, Brandon Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr. Desmond Bain, who they, I believe, found in the second round. And then they've put the ancillary pieces together around them. Steven Adams, Luke Kennard, who was excellent for them. He shot over 50% from three since he came over from the Clippers. That's, a, that, that's, that's unheard of. Luke Kennard, one of the best shooters in the NBA. So they've put the ancillary pieces around them. But in the, in the process of all this, they have created a spark plug of a team, which at the end of the season devolved into a tire fire. We can just call it what it is. But here's my question for the Memphis Grizzlies. If you want to take a more stricter approach to trash talk, don't you need players who can rev themselves up without that? Because the Pandora's box that you opened when you drafted all of these guys is that this is just who they are. Now, if you want to try to cut off the slippery slope, you can say, look, like the trash talk on the court when you're going up against somebody in the heat of competition is, 
is fine to a point, but this nonsense to the media has to stop, then you probably will be okay. And Dylan Brooks wasn't the only person who made waves in interviews. John Morant said he's fine in the West. Only team he's got to worry about is the Celtics. I'm fine in the West is what he said back in December, January, whatever, whenever it was. And then he didn't make it out of the first round. If you want to say, hey, let's let's cut this sort of thing out, you can make a case that you can live with that. But if you want to take the fire, the fiery side out of these guys, out of a Jaron Jackson, who, by the way, just won Defensive Player of the Year, out of a John Morant, who's got to alter his game at some point in time, or otherwise he's just going to keep getting himself hurt. And now you've cut bait with Dylan Brooks, who at best was one of the team's enforcers. Every team needs a tough guy. Every dynasty had one. The Lakers had Ron Artest. The Warriors obviously have Draymond Green. The Pistons had Bill Lambeer. I don't know who you could identify on the Chicago Bulls, but they they probably had one too. Every dynasty has a tough guy. So you need you need one. Now, will that tough guy be a Steven Adams? Yeah, but he's a little bit more of a mellow tough guy. Will it be a Brandon Clark? Maybe will that tough guy be Jaron Jackson Jr.? But you need a tough guy. And what you're getting dangerously close to if you're the Memphis Grizzlies is overcorrecting. And we see overcorrecting in American society today. We see a lot of it. You know, we've gone from the country that was okay with being offensive and segregating and, you know, all, all that we, that we know of to where we've, to, to, you know, where everything is cancelable. You know, that, that's an example of overcorrection. Sometimes you overcorrect. And if you're the Memphis Grizzlies, I don't think you can afford to overcorrect. Because then you've taken out a key component of what gets your guys going. And then Memphis, at that point, just isn't going to be good. They'll still make the playoffs, but they won't be considered the championship contender that they were this season. Because Denver's not going anywhere anytime soon. We'll see what happens with the, with the Suns and the Clippers. The Lakers will not have to be fighting an uphill battle for the entirety of next season. Minnesota's going to figure this thing out, you would think, at some point. OKC is on the come up. The Jazz are going to be on the come up in short order. So the West isn't getting any easier. Oh, and by the way, there's the defending champion Warriors. So the West isn't going to get any easier. And the Grizzlies, as an organization, if they don't proceed with caution here when it comes to how they're dealing with their players, could be on the verge of organizational upheaval just because of mismanagement of personalities. That's why we, this is, this is what makes the great organizations the great organizations. The Chicago Bulls of the 90s, the current Warriors in particular. How you handle your stars' personalities is challenge number one. The Warriors aren't as dominant 
just because they have the Splash Brothers and the collection of individuals around them. They have all of that, and then they have their leader in Steve Kerr that can manage all of this. The mellowness that appears like nonchalance from, from Clay Thompson, even though he cares. But when, but like, when do we see Clay Thompson get emotional? Let's be real. You have Steph Curry, and then you have Draymond Green. You got to have somebody to manage that. And, and Steve Kerr has managed it perfectly. They were able to bring Kevin Durant in. They paired non-confrontational Kevin Durant with whatever adjective superlative you want to put in front of Draymond Green and won two rings and would have won a third had it not been injuries. The Bulls had Michael Jordan punching homies in, in, in practice. He's punching people. Oh, and then they brought in Dennis Rodman. You got to have a guy in an organization that can handle those sorts of conflicting personalities. That's what makes those dynasties so great. And if you were the Memphis Grizzlies, you are at a, you're at a crossroads where you can figure this out and try to improve internal communication because that's something I really think is missing here with the Grizzlies. If we're going to be completely honest, I think there's internal communication that has just gone awry. But you're at a point now where you have to figure this out, and it's, and it's, and it's delicate. It is very delicate particularly when you have let it leak out that under no circumstances, think about this, you've never heard that before. That's never been said. Even when it's a dude with a, with a criminal history and there's just been so much baggage, you've never heard that said under no circumstances. This is a novelty. <laughs> so... That's where the Grizzlies are after being eliminated by the Lakers. Do I think they'll get it figured out? Maybe, yeah, I, I think they will. They're smart people in these rooms. They'll, they'll figure it out. But boy, are they potentially on the verge of something that can be pretty nasty. And I hope they figure it out because I like the Memphis Grizzlies a lot. And I like them even more that Dylan Brooks is not there. I'm not excusing Dylan Brooks. But I'm saying if you are an organization, particularly a GM, you can't leak the you you can't let that get out. As a general manager, as a head coach, you gotta be a little bit better than that. Because that sends a message to your stars and to other people around the league that you might want to potentially do business with. That does send a negative message. And I'll leave it at that. All right, that'll do it for this episode of The Gray Area. Really good stuff happening in the NBA right now, NFL. We're getting to the OTAs part of part of thing. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a good have a good night. Have a good Freedom over fame, freedom over fame. The cycle stays the same. Freedom over cycle stays the same.